Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us here at Fearless Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today I am so excited because I have a very special guest with us, and his name is Dr. Glenn Livingston, and he has written just such a fascinating book called Never Binge Again, and I want to just talk a little bit about his story. He is a veteran psychologist, and he was a longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which he has service several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily Times, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets you've seen on this page. Um, disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and and or food obsessed individuals dr livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 400 440,000 participants 40,000 wow most importantly however his own personal journey out of obesity food prison and a normal healthy weight much more lighthearted relationship with food now thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me dr ann it's nice to be I'm here so pleased to have you so this is uh, quite the story and quite the book so can you tell us your own personal journey of what got sure you can. to this place i sure can yeah so i think the most important thing for you to know for your listeners to know is that um i'm not just a doctor who decided he wanted to work with weight loss clients and overeating. I had a very serious binge eating problem myself. They would have, um, today they would diagnose it as exercise bulimia or they would have then. I don't, I don't have it anymore. But when I was young, about 17, I discovered that because I was 6'4 and reasonably muscular, that if I worked out for two, three, four hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. So I could eat whole pizza. I could have boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts, um, five or six lattes. I didn't call it back then. And um, whatever you can imagine, boxes of chocolate, whatever you can imagine. And it really wasn't a problem. I actually thought it was a great thing. I spent my life eating and exercising and sleeping and going to the bathroom. But that was fine when I was 17. And I stayed thin. It really, really wasn't an issue for me. When I got a little older, when I was 22, 23 years old, I got married very young, and I had a lot of responsibilities all of a sudden, and my metabolism had slowed down, and I was driving two hours each way to go to work, and I had all these patients, and my ex-wife, my wife then wanted to talk to me, and I just didn't have the time. I, I could work out maybe once a week. It was, it was horrible. And I found that even though that was the case, I couldn't really adjust the food. I developed an obsession with food and a real craving for it. And I would be, you know, I would be sitting in a, in a room with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, when can I get my next pizza? Or when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray into it? And I'm glad you like that. <laughs> I do. Um, and that was 
more so than all the weight I was gaining and the health problems I was developing, and I can tell you more about them if, if you want, more so than that, what really bothered me was my inability to be present because I come from a family of psychologists. There are 17 therapists in my family, and my standing joke is that if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. <laughs> um, but, but all kidding aside, being a great psychologist was always most important to me. That's really what I wanted to do in my life. And I couldn't. I mean, I, I never lost anybody. I specialized in working with suicidal adolescents for a while. I never lost anybody, but anybody who knows anything about that field knows it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, it is. You got to assess their lives and figure out what resources they need and what you can tell them. But really, you're there to lend them your soul. That's how psychotherapy really works. And the more serious the problem is, the more you have to be there to lend in your soul. And, and I wasn't really there. I wasn't 100%. So I felt like it was dangerous. I felt like it was, I was letting myself down. I was letting my family down. And because I come from a family of psychologists, I figured that it must be a psychological cause. Sometimes if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So I figured there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could figure out where that hole in my heart is coming from and I could fill that up, then maybe, maybe I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill up my stomach. And so I went on a journey, which took me in all sorts of directions I never expected, but it was a very soulful journey. And I went to see the best psychologists and psychiatrists in the area, and coming from my family, I knew them. And I went to Overdose Anonymous for a lot of years, and I took medication. I, I did all sorts of things. And... Each of them helped a little bit, but I would lose weight and then I'd gain even more. And I'd lose weight and I'd gain even more. And there was something that just wasn't clicking about it. Fast forward, uh, fast forward about 25, 30 years. And I finally got exhausted from doing that. And I said, there has to be, maybe the whole idea is wrong. Maybe it's not that there's a hole in my heart. Maybe overcoming overeating is more like capturing and caging a rabid animal than nurturing your inner wounded child back to health. Maybe I'm going to have to be more like an alpha wolf dealing with this part of me that is challenging for leadership. And when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership by another member of the pack, that alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. That, that alpha is, snarls and growls and says, get back in line or I'll kill you, right? It's a source of superiority. And there were several things that confirmed that for me. Now, some people take the inner wounded child approach and it works well for them or the intuitive eating approach and it works well for them. So I don't mean to bash that, but it really wasn't working like that for me. And, and I now know from the almost 700,000 readers that we have that it doesn't work well for a lot of other people either. Sure. Um, I never intended for that all to happen, by the way. So the three things that happened which flipped the paradigm for me and told me I had to be an alpha wolf were that I conducted a study with 40,000 people to figure out what the relationship was between the specific stresses in people's lives and the specific foods that they overate on. I'll tell you the results of that in a minute. I also did a lot of consulting for big food companies, and I saw that they were engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins, and it's all designed to hit our bliss points without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And there are billions of dollars that go into this. And then there's all this money that goes into advertising it. And people think advertising doesn't affect them, but it affects you more when 
you think it doesn't affect you because your cell's resistance is down. So they've got us right where they want us. There are five to 7,000 messages every year beamed at us through the internet and the airwaves. And how many of them do you think are about getting you to have more fruit and vegetables? Not, not that many, right? Nope. Um, so I said, well, that's an overwhelming force. That's an overwhelming force aligned against not just me and every, but everybody else. And that force is only getting stronger. Um, I remember consulting for the VP of a major food bar manufacturer. And I asked him what the most profitable insight they ever had was. And he said, well, you know, to tell you honestly, it was taking the vitamins out of the bar. I said, taking the vitamins out of the bar? He said, yeah, they were expensive and they were making it taste bad. And we found that it was easier to convince people that it was healthy by making the packaging pretty instead. And don't they use different colors of vegetables to make the packaging seem quote unquote healthy? And so psychologically people think that they're getting a healthier yeah. snack, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a reason why we're so attracted to a vibrancy and variety of colors. In nature, that signals the availability of different antioxidants and nutrients and a, a diversity that we really need. Just think about a gorgeous salad with, you know, crispy green lettuce and red tomatoes and blueberries and carrots and the, the, the rainbow of color is attractive to our uh, evolutionary brain for a reason. It signals to the diversity of nutrients that are available. So they're faking us out. And that, that's just an example. I don't mean to single them out. It goes on all over the industry, but they're, they're faking us out. And consumers want to be lied to, by the way. It's, this is not like, um, I mean, they, they really want an excuse to eat something that tastes unnaturally good and is unnaturally concentrated and to be told that it was actually good for them. It's, I don't mean to put all the blame on the companies, but I said, these are overwhelming forces aligned against me to attract my lizard brain, my reptilian brain, make me think that I need it to survive, to trick it into thinking I need their stuff to survive. And that has nothing to do with the fact that my mama didn't love me enough when I was a kid. It, it just, it's nothing to do with a hole in my heart. It's just, these are the facts, this is what we're facing. There's gotta be something different. When I, when I did the 40,000 person study, there were three things that came out of it. What, one was that people who were attracted to chocolate, who couldn't stop eating chocolate, and I was one of those people. My binges always start with chocolate, started with chocolate. Haven't had it in years. When, when those people binge, they're usually feeling lonely or brokenhearted, or more so than others. When people are attracted to salty, crunchy things, they're generally stressed at work. And when they are attracted to soft, chewy, starchy things like bread or bagels or pasta, they tend to be stressed at home. And I thought that was fascinating. And so it kind of gave me a neat party trick to ask people and figure out. <laughs> 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 so you're eating that chocolate at a party. You feeling a little lonely? It was <laughs> I got it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's incredibly interesting. I love so, that. So, Henry, I asked my mom before I started working with clients about it. I figured I'd better ask my mom. Um, and I, I did not work with eating disordered clients when I was younger because I had such a serious problem myself. I, I was probably about 280 pounds at my worst. Um, so, you know, and I wasn't exercising and, you know, we're about 210, 215, depending upon the, the week that you ask me. Um, but, but I asked my mom what this could possibly mean. I said, yeah, yes, I'm in a bad marriage and um, 
you know, so I am lonely and brokenhearted, but it's going to be a while before I can get out of that. And what, what could this mean? And she gets this horrible look on her face. And I said, mom, what is it? You can tell me. She said, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, whatever it is, it's 40 years ago. It's okay. I, I forgive you. I love you. And she says, I'm so sorry. But when you were one year old in 1965, Vietnam was raging and your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him over there and I was terrified and at the same time your grandfather my, my dad had just gotten out of prison and I didn't know he was doing all these bad things and my whole world came apart so I was sitting and staring at the wall anxious and depressed all the time and I just didn't have the wherewithal to hug you and hold you and love you the way you needed to be and so I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup and I kept it in a refrigerator on the floor. And when you come running to me, half the time I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd run over to the chocolate syrup and you'd open the bottle and you'd suck on it and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And that's where it probably started. And I went, wow, wow. If this was a movie, mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and we'd forgive each other and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. What happened instead was that I had more trouble with chocolate. And the reason I had more trouble with chocolate was because there was this voice in my head said something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're going to have to keep binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get some right now. See, so it was a voice of justification. It was a voice of justification. And I suddenly recognized that if the emotional disturbance is the fire, like the loneliness in my, my example or the brokenheartedness, if that's the fire, I've been spending a lifetime trying to put out the fire, thinking that I had to put out the fire in order to get better. But you could have a raging fire in a well-contained fireplace in the middle of your living room. And it actually becomes the center of hearth and home someplace where people gather around and make memories and share stories, as long as the fireplace is well-contained. But if the fireplace is broken, and it turns out that it's this voice of justification that breaks the fireplace, then the sparks can get out and burn down the house. And I suddenly recognized that maybe what I needed to do was disempower that voice of justification and deal with the fire as its own thing. I mean, it, it can take a lifetime to find the love of your life, right? Just some people never do. So for me to wait to stop overeating until I could do that didn't really make, make sense at all. So this is the embarrassing part. This is the embarrassing. This is what I did as a sophisticated psychologist with millions of dollars of consulting behind me. I just, I just want you to remember before I say this that I wasn't going to publish it. This was going to be my, my private journal. Maybe I'd work with a couple of clients about it, but I was mostly going to be keeping it private. I decided that the reptilian brain, which doesn't know love, by the way, the reptilian brain, which is responsible largely for our food addictions and other addictions, it knows eat, mate, or kill. It sees something in the environment. It's, it's, the, um, it's the mammalian brain of the neocortex that make us more uniquely human. They're, they're the piece of us that says, hey, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact is that going to have on your loved ones or your tribe or your aspirations or your spirituality or who you want to be in the world? And I said, okay, well, I'm going to call that my inner pig. And I'm going to make a really clear line in the sand. I'm going to say, I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. 
just to try to get some control over this. I'll have it on the weekend, but not on a weekday. And if I heard a voice in my head that said, you could start tomorrow, or you worked out hard enough, it's not going to be a problem, or, you know, G. Glenn, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, which grows on a plant, and so therefore it's a vegetable. Whatever, whatever my pig was saying, that, that was pig squeal. That was pig squeal, and it was squealing for slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. As crazy as that sounds, as crude and primitive as it sounds, it's the first thing that was capable of waking me up at the moment of impulse, the moment of temptation, and giving me those extra microseconds that I need to remember who I was and what my plans had been. And I can't tell you that it was a miracle, that instantaneously I was better. What I'll tell you was that instantaneously I felt empowered. I, I had been going down a path where I really felt hopeless and powerless and you know, an Overeaters Anonymous had told me that I was powerless and I couldn't do this on my own. And the best I could do was abstain one day at a time. I could never quit. Um, but I suddenly didn't feel like that. I suddenly felt like, you know, I could make a decision here. And over time, I experimented with the rules. I kept a journal for eight years. Uh, me, me versus all the, with the pig and all the crazy things the pig would say and what the reality was. And ever so slowly, I started making more and more right decisions. I recognized that since nobody was telling me what to eat, I was creating my own rules, that it was silly not to listen to my own rules if I was awake. And it worked. I, I lost weight. I became thin. And, and um, I stopped obsessing about food all the time. I stopped thinking about food all the time. The, the way it became public was that as I was getting divorced in 2015, I was a minor part of a publishing company. And the CEO said they wanted a book that they could market of our own to prove to other authors that we could really do our stuff and we could attract better authors that way. I said, okay, well, I wrote this crazy journal. Do you want to read it? So I send the journal to my partner, Yoav, and he calls me back two weeks later and he says, don't let your pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> it's at, uh, and, and then he lost them. So he was the first follower. And he lost 86 pounds. And um, we published it. We, I mean, we know what we're doing in marketing. We've had a lifetime in marketing. But, but we did not expect the, the virality that occurred after that. And um, like I said, now we have 700,000 readers and 2,000 reviews. And sometimes I've been in a bookstore, and people don't really know my name, but they come up to me and they point at me, and they go, pig guy. <laughs> Aren't you so glad you named it that? I'm so glad I named it that, yeah. yeah. Um, so it sounded like you alluded to earlier that you have not had chocolate in how long did you say? You know, I don't even know because I don't count days. I, sometime right around the time I was getting divorced. I guess it's almost four years now. And so do you believe in quitting these foods cold turkey and every urge that you get? It sounds like you are saying this is a pig, this is, you know, the reptilian brain and separating it from yourself because it's not part of you, correct? But, and, and do you believe the way to do this is really to try to cold turkey as much as you can cut out some of these Well, um, y yes and no. Yes and no. I, I tried six ways to send a personally to find a way that I could keep eating chocolate. <laughs> have, it, have it on the weekends, have it after a really big workout, only have 200 calories a week. I, I tried 16 ways to Sunday. I don't know what the expression is, but I, I was not 
willing to let it go for a very long time. And I finally came to the conclusion that I'm really addicted to chocolate. I'm just one of those people that is better off with none than some. The majority of my clients don't do it like that. The majority of my clients discover that by defining very clear boundaries, which could be I'll only ever have chocolate on the weekend. It might be, um, you know, I will never have chocolate again except one dessert at a restaurant no more than once a week. But, but by having very clear boundaries and having made all the decisions beforehand, they don't have to rely on their willpower to do it. And suddenly this thing that was out of control in their life is now in control. And I'd say more people than not that I work with wind up with that solution than the give it up altogether solution. The good thing about the give it up altogether solution is that the voice quiets down quicker because you're not reigniting those pathways. And like Jack Trimpey of Rational Recovery says, we, we don't crave things that we know we're never going to have. So people ask me, how did I, how can I deal without chocolate? Don't I feel deprived? I said, I don't have a craving. It looks, when I pass the chocolate bar in the, in the Starbucks that I used to get all the time, it, it looks like a big bag of chemicals. I, I, don't, I don't feel it anymore. I did for a couple of months. And about two months later, it was 80% reduced. Um, and then a year later, it was almost gone. What, what people don't know, see, your, your pig will tell you that you can't make this change. You can't give up chocolate or have it three days a calendar month or something. You just can't do that. You're going to feel too deprived. What you don't know is that your taste buds and your dopaminergic reward system has been deadened by the ongoing presentation of supersized stimuli. We didn't have any chocolate in the savannah, right? We didn't have any chocolate in the tropics. And, I mean, we had cacao, but we didn't have, you know, chocolate combined with sugar and fat and butter and what, all the things that they put in there. And it's kind of like sleeping underneath a subway. When I was in graduate school, I slept underneath the subway for a couple of months, and the first couple of weeks I couldn't sleep. But before I knew it, I couldn't hear the subway anymore because my mind, my whole nervous system had habituated to that unnatural stimuli. The same thing if you have a chocolate bar every day. Before you know it, you, it won't taste as good as it did in the beginning. Um, apples and oranges and you know, natural sugars will not taste good to you anymore. And you will feel like you can't live without it. That's what people say, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. It's a, it's a biological error where your survival drive has been hijacked and connected to this industrial product. If I stop sleeping underneath the subway and I go sleep out in the country, then my nervous system comes back. Uh, and then if I went back and slept under the subway again, it would be extraordinarily loud to me. And the good news is that that happens relatively quickly. If you stop having sugar, your nervous system comes back. Your taste, I think the research says your taste buds double in sensitivity over the course of six to eight weeks. And I don't know what happens with the actual reward system, but I know that people tell me that, oh my God, I, I like fruit again. I thought I could never lose weight because I hated fruits and vegetables, but I can actually tell the difference between a gala apple and an envy apple and a delicious apple, and I know which one is my favorite. And so your pig will say you're going to be deprived forever, but forever isn't forever. Um, day by day, you're going to get more pleasure out of life than you imagined. It's just that you have to kind of wrench it away from where it's been kidnapped and allow that readjustment process to, to take place. I think people's uh, dopamine receptors have been completely hijacked across the board, and even more so when they're craving things like 
chocolate or, you know, not on the topic of this conversation, but I see this a lot. Cocaine is another one. Um, you'll see people really gravitating towards those things or Facebook or something else to just dump dopamine. And people get so used to that. It's something I see in practice a lot is those dopamine receptors are shot. And it was interesting for me to hear people talk about, um, not having willpower to do, I do an elimination diet in my practice, not having the willpower to be able to stick or to, to do that without sugar because they're just so depleted in dopamine. I will see it a hundred percent across the board of neurotransmitter depletion in our society. What, what, what do you do for that? Um, I, what I, I, actually, do. I actually do. It depends on what's going on. So, uh, so neurotransmitters get depleted based on a leaky gut. So I try to figure out if there's something going on, for example, in the gut itself. I also have to stabilize the blood sugar. Generally, you'll see these people eat like, you know, oh, I just have dinner and I had coffee and I'm, I'm into this, um, what is it, intermittent fasting thing. And I just like to have coffee a couple times a day. I have some, I have a chocolate <laughs> bar and then I have, oh, I, I eat yeah. Kill me now. Kill me now. Yeah. <laughs> so, I have to stabilize their blood sugar because blood sugar is one of the biggest things that actually will affect the dopamine system. Um, if someone is so depleted, I actually give the precursors for dopamine and to, as I can heal the rest of the system. Really? Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. So a lot of times patients are B vitamin deficient. You'd be super surprised. At, I mean, and a lot of times they don't even just have the cofactors to make dopamine. So that's how I handle it. And I see pretty quick changes with dopamine. Um, I don't keep people on it long term because I really want their their gut to make it right. So, um, I I have not done more than two rounds of dopamine um, on a particular. That's so patient. interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow, I might want to send you some. <laughs> yeah, what do you do to change dopamine? Well, I mean, I'm I'm not a medical doctor, um, so this is just an understanding that I have okay. from re reading over the years. But I I find that for every craving that we have for an industrial food, there's some natural craving that's not being satisfied. So for example, I overcame my chocolate addiction by experimenting with different types of smoothies. So whenever I would have a chocolate craving, I wouldn't just white knuckle it and say, well, I don't need chocolate. I don't need pig slop and I don't know if I'm animal something. I mean, I would do that. And that's, how I, that's how I'd wake up. But then I would, as soon as I could, get over and make myself a smoothie. And what I eventually figured out was that a banana kale smoothie, I don't know if there's some nutrient combo in bananas and kale that would do what chocolate was doing for me. Um, and, and then I took a magnesium supplement also. Mm -hmm. I think that, there it is. <laughs> that, that, that's what it was? Mm -hmm. That okay. helps. Okay. Okay. So that that's what I do when I tell people to experiment with, you know, whole, fresh, natural foods. Um, I mean, I'm a plant-based person, but some people are, are not so... But I tell them, get, get away from the industrial stuff, experiment with more whole fresh things, figure out what gives you what you need. And then I often refer them to a nutritionist if, if that doesn't do it. That's what we do. Yeah. What, and what do you think about these, um, these strict like diets for people that have some of these problems? Like I have heard people with binge eating disorder say, I'm never going to do a strict diet again. I eat what I want. I don't want to be restricted because I've had this eating disorder, this binge eating that I couldn't stop or whatever it is. Um, what do you think of that comment from, from kind of so the, the world? There is, yeah. Um, it's a complex answer. So it's going to take me three, four minutes to, to get there, but I will. 
there's a notion in the world um, that any type of restriction, including mental restriction, causes an equal and opposite reaction in a binge. That, that's the notion. And the solution in a lot of the eating disorder community is to vilify the notion of calling any food off limits. You have to allow everything, anything in moderation. Um, and some people are successful like that. I, I do think that there's a psychological reason for that. I think that there are people who were controlled against their best interests in their upbringing. And so they have a, a survival drive to rebel against any rule, even rules they create for themselves. And I have seen people get better doing that. By the same token, there's flavored cardboard in the food system. And I think that if we lived in the tropics as we evolved and we trusted our instinct, I think we'd be fine. Eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. I think people could instinctually know and intuitively know what they need. But when you're talking about all these industrial products, they're designed to override that natural instinct. Like, like, like by design, they, they're, they're trying to get you to not be able to stop eating. And so to say, well, intuitively, I'm just going to know how many potato chips I should have or, you know, how much, um, you know, how much of this bag box or, or container I should have. It, it doesn't really make sense. You're not, we're not wired like that. It's almost like saying, well, I'm an intuitive smoker. I smoke only as much as I need to. I uh, like that. <laughs> right. Or, or, I mean, if you talk to vegans, there, there's a process, you would know the chemicals better than I, but I know that our muscles make energy producing compounds that if we're constantly consuming animal products, we get those compounds from the animal products. And then if we stop, we feel exhausted for a period of time until our muscles take over again. And if during that period of time you said, well, I'm going to intuitively eat what's best for me, you would always be right, led right back to the animal product. And I, I just think there are all these ways that we're introducing things into the food system that distort our natural instincts. And the way I like to think about it is mindfulness is very helpful. Intuitive eating is very helpful between the boundaries. Th think about your most serious uh, trigger foods or eating behaviors and create some traffic lights and stop signs around them. You know, if, if it weren't for traffic lights and stop signs, we couldn't move around the city safely. You know, we'd, be, we'd actually be restricting our freedom more because it would be too dangerous to move around. But with traffic lights and stop signs, we can drive mindfully. You know, we, we can get where we need to go. We can enjoy the experience. We can talk to our friends on the phone. We can listen to music. We can be present in, in the world. Without them, there are too many places to crash. And so that's why I'm in favor of specific rules. And there's one more reason. This is the last reason, I promise. Yeah. Uh, the last reason is that some, some of these studies are having some reproducibility issues, but I still am in favor of the conclusion. The willpower does not appear to be a genetic gift that's in black and white, like either you have it or you don't. It's more like gas in the tank that we all get. And we get a bunch of it in the morning, and we lose it throughout the course of the day as we make decisions. Not just decisions about food. Uh, people have trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems beforehand because they've taxed their decision-making ability. If you, if you answer a lot of emails, by the time you're done answering emails, the, it's going to be more difficult to be discriminating about food. 
And so what I find is that if you can eliminate a lot of that decision making, that people suddenly find they have more willpower. But it's really because they're not relying on willpower at all. If you say, I only have one dessert once per calendar week at dinner um, at a restaurant with, you look like you need to sneeze. Yeah, um, I did. I know. I was sorry. I'm fighting it. I'm fighting it. That was really cool. Though you were, that was like really that? cool. That we, yeah, I was trying I, to hold it in. I was really impressed the way you did that. I, I, I would have I just sneezed. Or, or snows, sneeze. <laughs> I would have just, just sneezed. It's, it's, never mind. Um, PhD, they didn't teach me this stuff in graduate school. So rules actually work better than guidelines because they eliminate those decisions. If you want to stop, if you want to have chocolate 10% of the time, for example, it'd be better to say, I'll only have chocolate on the last calendar weekend of the month, which is about 10% of the time, so a little less, than to say, I avoid chocolate 90% of the time and I eat it 10% of the time. The reason is, every time you're at a Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, if you avoid chocolate 90% time and eat it 10% of the time, you're gonna to have to make another decision every single time you're in front of the bar. But if you only eat chocolate on the last calendar weekend of the month, then 90% of your chocolate decisions have been made and you don't have to use willpower every time you walk into Starbucks. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you're not talking about, because I think a, a complaint that would come back from patients would be, well, my job's really stressful and I have to write emails and I have to respond to things all day long and I just want that chocolate bar at 3 p.m. You know, and that's when their blood sugars crash. That's when they're totally spent. And what would you tell that particular patient? Well, first of all, I would say that it, it might be that your pig wants it and you don't. But if you really want it, then okay, let's have it. But let's define exactly how much you're going to have and what you're going to have after and how are you going to take care of yourself in and around that, that indulgence. Because, you know, I, I believe that we fought wars for our freedom in this country and no one has the right to tell you that you can or can't have this. Um, but to avoid getting out of control with it, let's, let's put some parameters around it. it it's like um, if you shoot at an archery target, there are several rungs around the bullseye. And sometimes if you know you're going to be in a stressful or very seductive situation, you need to shoot for the outer rungs and not for the bullseye itself. And that's okay. It's better than shooting the arrows into the audience. Yeah, that's, that's actually quite interesting because I think so many people are so stressed out, so depleted, and then the cycle continues. They eat more sugar. They eat more simple carbohydrates, exactly what you've talked about, because it's just go, 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 push, 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 and they they break themselves down to such a low level. And we know that the simple carbs actually increase the neurotransmitter short term and then tank them down again. And so that's yeah. why you get that vicious cycle of, wow, I feel better. I felt great when I ate that. Oh yeah. An hour later, I was completely passed out on the floor. And, and, and because our brains are better at short term thinking and short term and organizing themselves for short term rewards than long term rewards. Um, and unfortunately has a very addictive influence on us. I, I think the, the up that you get from that sugar is about 18 to 32 minutes, right? Followed by several hours of, of down. Of pain, yep. Yeah, yeah, and, unless you have more and you try to you know, chase the dragon away. But. Which I feel like it's a cycle. Well, I crave that, so I wanted it, and, and, and I felt good, and then I felt worse. So, yeah, it is quite a bit the cycle, so you're yeah. right on on that. Yeah. Any other tips if somebody is struggling with this? Well, I mean, I've got a whole bunch of free things I can give them to get started, but, but um, a lot of people resist this because it seems too regimented and like it's going to be too much work. But 
I tell them what we're really doing is something you've been doing your whole life anyway. We're actually building character. Like one definition of character is the way that we habitually respond in the face of temptation without even knowing it. So if, if you go into a diner and there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress didn't see your tip yet, and there's nobody up front, and there's nobody, um, there's no windows or a video camera, and the waitress says, I'll be right back. I just have to get your menu. Would you take that $20 bill? No one would. Right. right. Well, it's some not be- yours, right? It's not yours. Because you're not a thief. Right. You, you have an unwritten rule in your head that says, I never steal. It's because of the kind of person you want to be. See, character trumps willpower. If it's, I don't think of myself as having to abstain from chocolate for the rest of my life. I just think of myself as a person who doesn't eat chocolate. It's just part of my character. I'm, I'm not a chocolate eater. Um, you can be a person who only eats chocolate on the weekends. You can be a person who only has pretzels at Major League Baseball games. And you can add rules that add things to your life also. I always put my fork down before I take, I take a bite. I always drink two glasses of pure spring water as soon as I get up in the morning. I, I always have five servings of fruit and vegetables every day. You can add, you can add things also. And it's, it is important to avoid making rules that are overly restrictive because people who overeat are also really good dieters and they, it's a part of the feast and famine cycle and you want to step out of that. There are some rules that you can't make if you make rules that deprive your body of the nutrition and calories that they need, then your body will force you to do otherwise eventually. Just think about trying to make the rule, I will never pee again. Sooner or later, you're... <laughs> Sooner or later, you're... It's going to go bad. That's the, that one's not going to work. That was not going to work. Um, I'm glad I made you laugh. That was so, hilarious. Okay. So, character trumps willpower. Um, Start with one rule. Start with only one rule and teach yourself how the game is played before you try to lose weight and go to town making a whole big food plan. Um, Think about your single worst trigger food or eating behavior and make a rule. You know, I, I never eat standing up. I never eat in front of the TV. And then watch your pig try to convince you to do otherwise. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your food monster. Or you can, call, as long as it's not a cute little thing inside you, because this is, it, it's like a bodily organ. The bladder is actually a very good analogy because we all live with very intense urges from our bladder. As a matter of fact, I have one right now. Um, but, but we, I'm, I'm going to complete this interview before I let my bladder do what it wants to do because of the kind of person I want to be, because I made a commitment to you, and because um, it would be very messy if I didn't. It's, it's the same thing with our urge to overeat. It's just a biological urge. You don't have to get rid of it. You have to become comfortable with the fact that these cravings exist sometimes. There are ways to make them more comfortable and slow them down. But, but um, as human beings, we have, a, we have a responsible burden to channel our strongest drives into pro-social behavior and eating is included in that so it's it's okay that you feel like like everyone in your body is screaming binge that's okay it's okay that you feel like if you don't get those potato chips you're going to die that's normal the way that our society is set up what's not okay is to think that feelings are facts to to think that 
You know, they're going to find your bones by the refrigerator tomorrow morning if you don't get that bag of potato chips. It's, it's not going to happen. And you can take a breath, take yourself out of that uh, fight or flight emergency mode because that's what happens when you're feeling those overwhelming cravings. And then ask yourself, how can I authentically take care of myself instead? Where is the, sometimes it's self-care. Sometimes it's stepping out of all the stress for five minutes and going to breathe. Even if you have to go hide in the toilet and meditate for five minutes. I have clients who meditate in the toilet. Um, even if you have to do that, you'll be amazed at how much more willpower you have when you're, when you're done meditating. I can't believe I'm talking about meditating in the toilet. But, um, but you'll, you'll be amazed at how much more willpower you have after that five minutes than, than before that. It's true. If you could just hold off the craving for a little bit, it changes. Yeah. Yeah, because then the body says, the brain says, I guess this wasn't a matter of survival after all. Yeah. So the last thing I want to leave people with, and then if it's okay with you, I'd like to tell them how they can get a copy of the book for free. Of course, okay. yeah. The last thing I'd like to leave you with is the idea that this is a lot simpler than it's made out to be. There's a lot of misinformation in our culture. There is a lot of confusion about having to do you don't have to solve all the problems in your life in order to stop binging. You don't have to reach spiritual enlightenment. Solving therapeutic problems is a good thing. Spiritual enlightenment is a good thing. I, I'm a soulful person. I, I pursue that path myself. But it's independent of what you need to do to stop binging. All you have to do to never binge again is never binge again. I know it sounds ridiculous, but try it. You don't have to believe me. You just have to try it, and you'll see, you'll see how this works. Um, so I, I set up a free copy in electronic format, Kindle Nook or PDF, at the website, neverbingeagain.com. Click on the big red button and sign up for the free bonuses. You'll get that. Two other things I have for you that will be helpful. Uh, my plan is diagnostic, even though I'm not diagnostic. The plan is diagnostic. So I work with people with all different plans. And we created a sample set of rules which you customize for yourself for any particular uh, dietary philosophy that you have. Um, Dr. Ann and Maria, you and I are, are more are more or less of the same philosophy philosophy about the intermittent fasting and the you know super low carb and all that. But nevertheless, people do it and it's better than binging. It's better than binging in my in my estimation. So I have those those templates for you. I also know a lot of you must be thinking, why does Dr. Anne Marie have this crazy psychologist out who's got a pig inside him? <laughs> <laughs> this, this this sounds really harsh. Um, in the abstract, in theory, it sounds really crazy. It's not. I promise you, it's a very compassionate thing. And if you listen to some of the sessions that I've recorded, which you'll get for free, you will hear people go from feeling powerless and confused and hopeless about ever being able to control this to feeling confident and in control and hopeful. And if you combine this with nutritional counseling with someone like 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 you, Dr. Ann, I... It's, it's a very powerful one-two combination. If you take care of the physical needs and you organize your mind and you restructure your thoughts so that you know how to get through those moments and you don't need willpower, um, it's a very, very powerful combination. So I would highly recommend that they endeavor to do that. Yeah, that's Every great. And I, I love all the free information you shared to help out the listeners here today. It's just so important. You know, I put people on elimination diets initially just to figure out where their food sensitivities are for a short period of time. And just the things that I hear and the struggles that people have, I just felt like this interview was so necessary to get 
the word out of all of the diet misconceptions, all the problems. How how long do I have to do this? Why can't I stop eating? Why do I crave these things? And just to understand that this is not something's wrong with you. It, it just is something that needs to be tweaked, something that needs to be addressed, and it can be addressed. So I really appreciate you being here today. I just I thought your book was super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate this also. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.